Aloha. You are listening to Mark's Gospel of the Servant Savior, a message series from Shorebreak Church. If you have been blessed by this series, please join us in the mission of making disciples by partnering with us in prayer or by giving financially. Partner with us by visiting shorebreakchurch.com. Mahalo. Amen. And you can be seated. Wow, what a song. Thank you, brothers, for leading us in worship, guys. What a blessing it is. Hey, Merry Christmas to you. How is it? You guys doing all right? Good to be with you. Um, my name's Travis, if you don't know me, if you're visiting us for the first time. If you're checking out this church, if you don't know Jesus, you're welcome. We're glad. We're thankful to have you joining us today. We pray that through this worship gathering, through our time and, and worship and the word, that you would come to see Christ as Savior, sent from God, God's gift to humanity. The greatest gift you could ever receive during this time of year is a person, and it's God, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would come to know him. It's, it's a blessing to have unique giftings and talents within the church body. People are, are equipped with the Holy Spirit, and along with that equipping of the Holy Spirit are, are gifts. Gifts and talents that are given from God, and one of those being preaching. We have people in the body of Christ that are gifted to share with us. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to hear from someone in a moment uh, out, of, out of Mark chapter 8 into Mark 9. And so you can make your way there now. But before we do, I just want to talk about this man that I, I love dearly. I've grown in relationship with him. He is someone who, who holds me accountable. I think every person, uh, every Timothy needs a Paul in their life. Every person needs someone that, that is that, that is going to pour into them, who's been through more and who's walked with the Lord and who has a great marriage. And so, of course, I'm talking about uh, our community group leader here within the church, Dan Marino. We're going to be hearing from him today. Um, his wife, Robin, is amazing. If you haven't gotten to know Robin, she, she's actually better than Dan. Dan's pretty awesome. <laughs> But Dan's totally fine that I say that, right, brother? Okay, he's cool with that. So uh, anyway, so um, Dan is someone who I meet with uh, every couple weeks or so, and, and I just pour my heart out to him. Be like, dude, here are the sins that I'm struggling with. Here are the areas I need you to speak into my life. And so I want to encourage you first, if you don't have someone doing that for you, find it. That's what Timothy or Titus 2 calls us to do, that the younger ladies would pursue and seek older women, and older women would pour into younger ladies in the church, and that's true for men as well. And so um, he's one of those men in my life, and I'm thankful for him. And uh, aside him being a better surfer than me, which I'm not jealous of, but he is, and running a successful business, he really, really loves Jesus. And so would you put your hands together, church, as we invite up the Dan Marino, the Dan Marino. Yeah, good morning and aloha. Uh, I really love this time of the year, Christmas season. And I know that um, many of you, probably all of you, have memories of Christmas's past. And uh, back in the late 80s, we would vacation to Oahu uh, almost every year. And uh, we had, I think our kids were maybe 10, 7, and four. This was <laughs> the late 80s, so you know how old I am. <laughs> but we were at the Aloha Swap Meet on Oahu, and I was just talking with my wife and the kids, making sure they behaved, and uh, we were buying some things for them, buying souvenirs, and 
for some reason, I felt the pair of eyes staring up at me. So I looked, and the booth right next to us was this lady sitting on a stool. Maybe it was just a paint can. And she had this look, the most puzzled look on her face, like, and she says, Abra, where are you from? California. I thought you local boy, just get educated. That's why you don't talk like the kind. (laughs) As we look at this passage this morning, there's going to be some education that the disciples will will get, uh, even some followers that were there, but I hope that we gain some insight from what we're going to look at today. So, uh, what Travis says, if you can turn with me to eight chap- uh, chapter, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start with verse 27. And if you can honor God's word by standing up as I read it, please. <clears throat> and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Father, we thank you so much for the reading of your word. As uh, Travis shared several weeks ago, when we read your word, we hear your voice. And yes, Father, Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. And Father, we we count it as a humble privilege to be sitting here in this room, worshiping you. And I pray that you have been pleased with the worship thus far. In the singing, in the giving, I pray, Lord, that as we listen to the message this morning, that you'll be pleased with how the word is presented to your listeners. I ask, Father, for your blessing upon me that my words and meditations of my heart will be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
The bulk of my message is going to be starting at verse 31, but I wanted to start off with uh, verse 27. Uh, just to let you know, uh, this ministry of Jesus is two and a half years into it. And uh, he finished his Galilean ministry and then went up to Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And um, what happened actually uh, before that, it, it was really critical because last week Travis shared that uh, uh, there's a blindness that is permanent and there's blindness that's temporary, a blindness that can be healed and a blindness that cannot. And there's also varying degrees of vision that he shared in his gospel, or excuse me, his uh, message. And when we read in the very first paragraph here, verses 27 through 30, it shows that Peter had a moment of clarity when he declared that Jesus is the Christ. Very interesting that Christ, meaning the anointed one, isn't mentioned uh, at all except for verse 1 of Mark's gospel until now. And so you have Peter declaring, you are the Christ. But as uh, we will soon see, that clarity gets clouded. And um, you read that in the very first verse of uh, the next section, verse 31. It says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It says, he began teaching them. I thought all along he'd been teaching the disciples, don't you? And what that means is that there's a new phase of Jesus' ministry because up until this point, he had been obviously uh, teaching and preaching at the synagogues. He's been teaching the disciples, but there's a different element to this teaching. And you can see Jesus uh, performing miracles. You can see him feeding the 5,000, the 4,000, and healing, you know, multiple people. Remember when he was in Gennesaret, uh, Mark chapter 6? Anybody that came to him or even touched his garment were, was healed. So this phase is really completely different because he talks about suffering and dying. In fact, he mentions this here, chapter 9 and chapter 10. And it's called the Passion Statement. So if you watched Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, that's what he's talking about here. And I know it was rated R, but to me, R stood for reality because that's what Jesus did. Um, it's interesting to me, too, that you have Jesus saying he must be rejected, suffer many things, and be put to death. But you know, it didn't come at the hands of humanity's worst. It actually came at the hands of the religious leaders, the elite of the religious uh, class. Also came from the Roman government. And they're the ones that tried and executed Jesus. It wasn't the, the dregs of society that we would normally use in those terms. But here it is. The religious leaders were the ones that instigated the whole thing. And what Peter heard was contrary to what he envisioned the anointed one to be. From his perspective, the anointed one, especially in the Old Testament, were either priests, prophets, or kings. And Jesus was certainly all three. But it also meant the anointed one, 
In this case, the anointed one is equivalent to the word Messiah. Was supposed to be a conquering king, a victorious warrior, or one who delivered justice on behalf of the oppressed. And Jesus says here, verse 31, he says, he must suffer. Very significant. And, you know, these little words and phrases as you read the Bible, as you read Scripture, are very important. And it's just one word, must. And what, was, what must he do? It says here that he has to suffer many things, be rejected, be killed. And when I read that word, it, to me, it indicates that there's no other option. That this passion statement, this uh, event that's going to happen in Jesus' life was planned long before the creation of the world. That was God's plan. It was also God's will that Jesus suffer, be rejected, and put to death. And it was the only way for you and I to be saved. So he must go through these things. It says here, verse 32, and he said this plainly. But Peter, for some reason, couldn't reconcile what he heard and what he had expected of Jesus. You remember his perspective was, okay, the Messiah is supposed to be a conquering king or victorious warrior, not somebody that uh, Jesus mentioned. And it's one of these types of things when you hear something, you, you have to take a moment to process it. It's like, okay, this person says something, but, but my presuppositions don't really match up. I don't know if you're baseball fans, but you've heard of Yogi Berra before, right? Or maybe you haven't. He was a New York Yankees ball player back in the late 40s and early 50s, actually became a manager for them. And it's funny, the way he came out with these phrases, he didn't mean to be funny, but they're just funny when you would listen to them. Here's one. It gets late early around here. <laughs> early. Or when he was a manager for the Yankees, he goes, okay, boys, pair up in threes. <laughs> pair up in threes. Doesn't that confuse you a little bit? Doesn't puzzle you? One time he was actually... After a game, he called down to a, a pizza parlor. Let's say it's called uh, Yankee Pizza or something like that. Hello, this is Yogi Berra. Uh, I'd like to order a medium pepperoni pizza, please. And the order taker goes, okay, Mr. Berra, uh, would you like that medium pepperoni pizza sliced in six slices or four? Well, I don't think I can finish six, so you better slice it in four. One of my favorite ones is when you come to a fork in the road, you take it. Uh, Yogi, <laughs> what are you talking about? Peter came to a fork in the road. He didn't quite know how to handle it. He handled it the only way he knew how. Do you remember Peter? Uh, he's one of these guys that are just kind of impetuous and impulsive. He does the one thing that he only knows how to do. He takes Jesus' side 
And he wants to correct him because what Jesus said doesn't happen to a Messiah. They're supposed to conquer and rule, not suffer and die. So he takes him aside, or he may have gone, you know, we do the head motion like, hey, like Peter saying, hey, Jesus, I need to talk to you type of motion. And so Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. It doesn't say it in the Mark account, but if you're to look in the Matthew account of this story here, it says that Peter exclaimed, far be it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He said, okay, uh, that's not really that big of a deal. Well, actually it is. Because the earliest translation of the Bible, the Wycliffe Bible, was translated back in the 1300s, renders far be it as God forbid it. So what Peter is doing, he is invoking God's name to tell God the Father and God the Son that you've got it all wrong. That's how serious it is when Peter says, far be it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Before Peter can even finish, Jesus exclaims, get behind me, Satan. You don't have your mind set on the things of God, but on the things of men. When I first read that, uh, I go, did Jesus see the spiritual realm and actually see Satan right there telling Peter what to say? I, I, I was kind of puzzled. And I, as I researched a little bit more, what I understood was Peter was using a term uh, that you've heard before, hyperbole. And if you're a, uh, a Bible student, hyperbole actually is an exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. So what Jesus was using when he used hyperbole to say, get behind me, Satan, it was so serious that uh, it was equal with the nature of the temptation he experienced in the wilderness. Now check out Matthew chapter 4 if uh, you take notes. But that's exactly the reason why Jesus said what he said. Can you imagine the other disciples? They're within earshot of what's happening here. Uh, my wife and I just watched Mo uh, Moana. It, you know, it's a really fun, fun animated film. But it showed the guys, uh, somebody got yelled at, and all the guys had their eyes really big. It's like... And Peter's eyes, when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, his eyes must have popped, his jaws dropped, and his heart almost stopped. Can you imagine God telling you that? I would certainly wake up to that. Not only was that hyperbole that he used equal to the nature of the temptation that he experienced, but disciples were supposed to be followers, as in behind. In this case, Peter was in front, trying to lead Jesus away from his ordained mission. That's the seriousness of this whole episode right here. Let me ask you a question. Um, don't we have a little Peter in all of us? Don't we want Jesus the way we want Jesus to be? Don't we want Jesus to make life easier, more comfortable with no controversy? Like many of those who 
at one time were followers, they wanted free food and free health care, you know, the feeding of the 5,000 and the healing. But Peter, in this whole scene here, was expecting kingdom glory his way instead of God's way. And what Peter said was in total opposition of God's plan. Certainly it was the heaviest of rebuke because the temptation it presented, should Jesus fall into it, would have been game over. If Jesus did not suffer and die for the sin of mankind, there'd be no reason for the cross. There'd no reason for me to be here or you out there. And we would be eternally separated from the living God. Do you see how important that is? So Jesus' way to glory is through being rejected, suffering many things, being put to death, and then of course the glory is he's going to raise again. But then he goes into a, a different mode here. He's trying to teach his disciples how to be a disciple in Christ. And it's their way, the disciples' way, to glory. Look what it says here, verse 31, um, excuse me, uh, Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When you deny yourself, what it is is to refuse our natural inclination to live life the way we want to live it. Before we became followers of Jesus Christ, the decisions we made about our own selves, our own lives, had to benefit us, right? And that is what it means to live for yourself. Hey, what's in it for me? It's all about me. And that's not uh, what denying is. Denying ourselves is hard because it strikes at the very heart of our being. You know what we value the most, what we desire the most, what we protect the most is the ultimate decision, or excuse me, is our right to have the ultimate decisions for ourselves. Isn't that true? I go, oh, you know, if somebody asked me, hey, can you uh, help out this part of the church? I go, well, you know, (laughs) that's the time I usually go surfing. When the greater need is, is... you know, to encourage somebody by helping out at the church. But that's the problem with not denying ourselves because we operate under our own desires, you know, the ultimate decision for ourselves. And I love what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19b and a. He says, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Simply put, if you're a follower of Christ, he has the ultimate lordship over your life. He has the ultimate rights to who you are. And this is to take up the cross. And if you are a, if you study the Bible quite a bit, you're saying, okay, verse 34 says take up the cross. But in verse 31, Jesus mentioned nothing about the cross. Remember that uh, the cross was, or the crucifixion was already in place. The Roman government had been in, in power for over 100 years. They came up, they devised this thing called crucifixion, which is the most brutal, most agonizing, most humiliating way to die. And uh, if you saw somebody carrying a cross, 
It's actually a cross member called the patibulum. And it weighed anywhere from 75 pounds, and I've read up to like 125 pounds. It's a cross member that they would carry. And they, they would actually have a little sign put over their neck, and it said what crime they had committed. And so the Romans would have them carry this cross beam or this patibulum to the place of execution, and that is where they're to be put to death. Taking up the cross doesn't mean the normal frustrations or difficulties that we experience in everyday life. What it means is a total dedication and giving your whole life to Christ. Doesn't that sound like salvation? It also sounds like discipleship. So what that means to me, and I'm sure to you, is that they're one of the same. You can't be a Christian without being a disciple. You can't be a part-time Christian. Okay, I'm going to go to church on Sunday, but the rest of the week is all mine. There's no such thing as a part-time Christian. One of the quotes uh, uh, I remember from a group, DC Talk. I know they're back in the... Right on, yeah. <laughs> I, I love DC Talk. I, here I'm, I'm in my 60s. I still love to listen to DC Talk. But it was one of the songs, I think it was Jesus Freak. And uh, I may butcher up the, the quotation, but it's Brendan McKeenan that said this. The greatest cause of atheism today is Christians declaring their faith in Jesus Christ with their lips, walking out the door and denying him with his lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. So it takes full commitment, denying yourself, taking up the cross. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul knew what it meant to take up his cross. It didn't mean physical death. It meant the spiritual one. It means to put to death our tendencies to be self-centered and self-serving. It's putting to death your own agenda for this life. That's what it means to follow the cross. And then it says to follow him. You know, even if we disciples or followers find we're in the midst of pain, suffering, rejection, when we follow Jesus, we acknowledge the fact that we are not in control, but we are fully dependent on the one who is. And that's Jesus Christ. When you do that, because of that fact, whatever it is that you're going through, you learn about assurance, you learn about hope, that whatever it is, it's going to benefit us in the long run and bring ultimate glory to God. That's what it means by denying the cross, or denying yourself, picking up the cross, and following him. But you know, there's an upside to this. What would it look like, really, if we're to live out this great commitment? It has to have, have some effect or take effect in our own personal lives. Number one is that there's a transformation in our character. Instead of operating in 
fear and uncertainty, you live life with peace and confidence. That's what happens when you deny yourself, pick up the cross, and follow him. How about a husband and wife relationship? Do you know that uh, the husband's prayers are directly related to how the husband treats his wife? Check it out, 1 Peter. You're supposed to, husband's supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And what did he do for the church? He died for, for the church. How about the father to a child relationship? When the, you do that, what happens is you, you realize that kids have four fuel tanks they operate on physical, emotional, moral, and spiritual. I don't have time to get into all that, but that's what happens when you deny yourself, pick up the cross, and follow him. How about among believers? There's one Greek word that I want you to learn today. It's called alelon, and it means one another. If you were to read Paul's uh, writing, he uses this word quite a bit. It means one another. So with believers, you're supposed to encourage one another. You're supposed to pray for one another. You're supposed to lift up one another. How about in areas where you're having a, a difficult time with another believer? You're supposed to show grace to one another, mercy to one another, forgive one another. Do you see how this whole thing works in our lives? How about how you prioritize what God has blessed you with in areas of finance or or wealth, or acclaim. It has to take effect on how we prioritize that. Because look what it says in verse 35 through 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You know, I want to let you know that uh, there's nothing wrong with being successful or wealthy. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the luxuries that God in his good pleasure has blessed you with. But if those things become the things you idolize or worship, then you need to check yourself out against the standard of Scripture. When you read these verses, it says whoever, and it refers to everybody, all people from all generations of life. And what happens is you're you're given one of two choices. That's it, one of two choices. There is an evil and pervasive thought that has really infected humanity. And that thought is, this life is, uh, this life is all there is. And with that mindset, many live out their lives in their own world that excludes any recognition of God or his existence, accountability to his statutes, and life with him. And what's hard about that is realizing that we know somebody like that. They could be the nicest person in the world. They could be somebody you love. It could be someone you work with or an acquaintance. Yet what they desire is complete independence and total control of the world they live in. Their world could be simple and unassuming or it could be complex and prosperous, but nevertheless, 
a world lived like the Frank Sinatra song, I'll Do It My Way, leaves out, it crowds out, it pushes away the very relationship that redeems the soul. That's Jesus Christ. He redeems the soul. But when you push him out of the way, what soul do you have? What, what can you exchange for that? The last stanza of the poem, Invictus, have you heard of that before? I, if you haven't, you, you've heard these words before. It says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And you know what? That's nothing but a lie. And I've got news for um, anybody that believes that. See, there's nothing in this world that we really own. There's nothing that's really ours, except for what God has blessed us with. We don't even own our own souls. You realize that? Um, let's go to Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21, and I'll, I'll read it real quick. It's a parable. Parables are, sh are short stories presented uh, to speak spiritual truth. It says here, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Before I go on, just make note of how the personal pronouns here, okay? And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Amen. It's sobering to read something like that. Sure. You see, when you're in a settled position on the throne of your life, you have, in effect, puffed out your chest in worship of yourself and the things that you've done. And that is the very anthem of the enemy. If you don't believe me, check out Isaiah chapter 14. Sometimes I, I want to make sure that I get a point across, and I, oftentimes I like to enlist uh, Sweet Brown. I don't know if you've heard of Sweet Brown before. Sweet Brown was a, a YouTube sensation, overnight YouTube sensation. She has over 9 million hits on, on her little YouTube uh, video. Please, whatever you do, don't, you, uh, don't YouTube her right now, maybe after the service. But um, her apartment uh, caught on fire. And they uh, interviewed her, and they go, uh, Miss Brown, what was it like when you're... Uh, apartment caught on fire and she goes I woke up to get me a cold pop and I thought someone was barbecuing <laughs> and I said oh Lord Jesus it's a fire I didn't grab my shoes or nothing Jesus and the smoke it got me Ain't nobody got time for that. 
you know, we don't have time. We ain't got time to wait. We ain't got time to hesitate. We ain't got time to procrastinate. What I mean by that, we ain't got time, we ain't got time to wait on denying ourselves. We ain't got time to hesitate picking up our cross. And we cannot procrastinate in following him. You know why? Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory for his, of his Father and with his holy angels. You know, eternity can happen at any time. Amen. It can happen today for some of us. You know somebody in your life that eternity could be just right around the corner. I'm not old, but I'm not young, but I have experienced the spectrum. And that's why we have to take heed of this gospel, Jesus' teaching about denying ourselves, picking up the cross and following him. Because we do not want to be on the wrong side of eternity. That word ashamed is pretty interesting because it's not just a normal word that we use. In the Greek expositor, expositor testament, it says that ashamed is the apparent act of denial. And I love to take my wife to the movies, and, and there have been times where, and I always try to go PG-13 or, or smaller, or, or not smaller, but whatever. <laughs> Kids rating. But, but one time I made a mistake and we saw something shameful and we were ashamed to, to have seen it. We closed our eyes, we turned our head, we actually got up and walked away because we were ashamed of what we saw. Amen. And that is what happens really when somebody denies Christ. They're ashamed of him and walks away like this, the religious leaders. They're already blind. They have seen Jesus perform miracles, they've heard his teaching, yet they remain blind, have rejected him, were ashamed of him, and there's no salvation for them. We don't want to be on that side. We want to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior so that when eternity is there, we will spend it with him. There's words that I long to hear when I get to that point. There's six of them. Well done, good and faithful. A six, well done, good and faithful servant. Years ago, uh, my wife and I have been believers since 1977. And I remember telling my mom and dad that we no longer go to the Catholic Church, that we became believers in Christ. And it got to the point where my dad said, get yourself a, a new last name. And for the next three decades or so, you know, I, I'm telling you, every day I prayed for my mom and dad. Every day. And 
Uh, one time my dad goes, Dad, can you fly out here and, and help, help me with my, my living trust? Because he knew, he knew his time was short. I go, sure. And um, after doing the business stuff, I go, Mom and Dad, I want to pray for you. And, uh, let me tell you, they accepted Jesus in that prayer. And I felt that God pulled back the curtains of eternity, looked down and smiled. And I even, driving back to the airport, I called Rob and I go, you won't believe what just happened. Because I could not stand, even if I was to live a life, when I came to eternity, my dad wasn't there. I, I don't know what I'd do. So I had risk that same rejection that I had 30 years ago because I wanted him there to hug him once again. How about you? I pray that uh, you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ so that way he can say those very same words to you. If not, if you have questions, I'll be here after the service. You can talk to me or one of the pastors that, that are here. But he loves you so much that he died on the cross for you. And he finishes off here because it's such a heavy teaching. Chapter 9, verse 1, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. When there's prophecy like that, sometimes it happens almost immediately, but obviously there's, it's in the future. But just about a week later, three of them get to witness God's power come in glory. It's called the transfiguration, and that's for next week. As you live this life, base your decisions and live this life from the perspective of eternity. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. I pray for those who still have questions. I pray for those who are true disciples that seek only to give you glory and to honor your name. I pray, Father, as we um, live this life, that you would continue the work in our lives until you come in glory. We thank you for praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please visit shorebreakchurch.com to stay connected or to share your story.